From Brock Media, this is Never Told. I'm the producer, Nicole Davis. Each week, we'll be sharing an original story from a different writer, told in their own voice. This week, we're pleased to present Wildly Parisian Whore, written and performed by Harry Trevoldwin. Harry is an actor, comedian and writer. His credits include the English-language remake of Call My Agent, 10%, as well as Judd Apatow's 2022 COVID comedy, The Bubble, and his Channel 4 pilot that he wrote, starred in and associate produced called Billy. He'll soon be seen in a lead role in the BBC film feature Sweet Sue and was named the Screen International Star of Tomorrow in 2022. I'll be back towards the end to chat with Harry about how he created this story, but for now, here he is reading Wildly Parisian Whore. I asked to leave my bag in the lobby so I can have some proper quality one-to-one time with my phone. The concierge nods before I finish asking, and nodding with her are golden hoops that don't quite match. Maybe the mismatch is on purpose, but I decide that it's not, because her bun is too neat. I mean, she definitely watched a tutorial to get her bun so neat, and probably ordered something off Amazon to help. Things like that don't just happen to a person. What you are going to need is a big brush like this, and next... The bag is wheeled over to a little side room, which doesn't look overly secure. And it'll be safe there, I ask, for no other reason than to add a layer of guilt should it be stolen. I have a barely used serum in my bag that I'd be very sad to lose, but I'm too embarrassed to ask them to wheel the suitcase out just so I can get my serum. Perhaps that would be very Parisian of me. Or not Parisian at all. Maybe it would just be annoying. I leave the hotel, baggage-free, with just my phone. There are so few occasions that I walk around without a backpack that whenever I do it, it feels almost dizzyingly liberating. Like I could just float off. Without my backpack, I feel like someone who is so present and vividly in this moment that they aren't even worried about what will happen if they get thirsty and don't have their water bottle with them. They're not worried about it at all. I'm on the app almost immediately. I changed my photo that morning to match the worldly Parisian whore image I'm trying to project. In the picture, my lips look very full, but what they don't know is that it's because of Vaseline rosy lips. The man I'm meeting is older than me, which I like, because if someone's older than me, that means they're wiser than me, and if they're deciding to do the same thing as me, then that means it must be the wise decision. Do you see? I'm wearing a long coat, which always makes me feel more powerful than I am. I wish it was even closer to the ground, but you can't have everything you want all the time. I turn my back to the wall to check my phone. I'm pressed against it with my phone close to my body, and I turn the brightness down so nobody can see what I'm doing. I can't even see what I'm doing, so I turn the brightness up a bit. I make a point of always trying to sneak a look at people's phones to make sure they're doing embarrassing things. Once, I sat next to a man on the train and he was sending what I assume was his girlfriend a string of messages about how much he loved her, emoji-led, whilst simultaneously working out the conversion rate from pounds to yen, which proved to me that everything really is about sex and money. 
The man I'm meeting hasn't sent me any more messages, and that's fine, because I know where I'm going, and I know that he's free in about 20 minutes. And I know that he's circumcised. Not that that matters, it's just something that I know. But I'm also checking my phone to see if there are any better options who have messaged me, because it is okay to want nice things. Now, the problem is, I've left too early, and his flat is less than 10 minutes away. So I decide to walk the wrong way on purpose for a bit to kill some time. Ideally, I want that wrong turn to surprise me with a beautiful street. I want it to be a beautiful street that I could have gone my entire life without seeing if I hadn't taken that wrong turn. And my life would have been worse for not seeing that street. Maybe there's a brass band there, practising music. They're all friends, you see, old friends. And they're playing music just because they love it. They don't need it to turn into a success or career, but secretly maybe one of them does. I bet it's the one who's wearing an attention-grabbing hat. I might grab a coffee in this beautiful street and soak in the moment. I can be late. And I'll make sure to get a black coffee so I'm not disappointed if the milk is burnt. The street turns into an ugly industrial dead end where the only shop sells luggage and Tupperware and there's not a trumpet in sight and nobody there to fall in love with. I check my phone. I'm seven minutes away and deliberate whether to send him a message saying I'm five minutes away or ten minutes away because saying I'm seven minutes away would make me seem psychopathic. I compromise by saying nothing. There are lots of other tourists around me, but I'm different from them. I'm an experienced tourist, a life tourist. They're not about to see the inside of a Parisian's flat, so I'm actually assimilating much more than them. I walk fast to make it seem like I've got somewhere very important to be. Hey, nearly there. Free now. I send that message after I've already been lingering outside for about two minutes. He lives on the corner of a street which is very busy and very central. It feels a bit like somewhere someone would live after doing a quick Google map search of Paris. He hasn't replied yet. Next door is a pharmacy, and I realise I can do two of my favourite things within the space of half an hour. Browsing products and casual sex. The shop is white and glass and very expensive. Just browsing, I tell them after they say something to me in French. They might have been asking me where my coat is from, or what I've got on my lips. I've already decided that I will spray myself with a perfume, because I can't smell the one I was wearing this morning when I pressed my wrist to my nose. I wish someone would tell me conclusively where the right place to spray perfume is. The choice of perfume is an important one, not to be taken lightly. You see, the perfume I choose to sample, generously, will be the smell that he will associate with me. For all he knows, it could be my signature scent. He never has to find out that I will always be too indecisive to have a signature smell, and he never needs to find out that I can never remember if midnight is 12am or pm, or that I once tried to bite my lips so hard seductively that they bled. Maybe he'll walk past someone years later who's wearing the same scent and it will remind him of me. Maybe. I spot a perfume in an amber bottle which looks classy and smoky and sexy and unassuming. It's not screaming, I'm a perfume, or I will change your life. There's a quiet confidence to the bottle that doesn't need me, so I, of course, need it. I spray it on before I even smell it. It's, of course, dreadful. What I mistook as boldness was in fact brashness, and I smell like I did when I was 14 and used to rub my misguided copy of FHM on my neck to transfer as much of the scent sample as possible. There's a sink in the pharmacy to promote their own brand of hand soap. I wash my hands and try and rub the worst of the smell off my wrists. They have little towels rolled up on the side to dry your hands with, which is a nice touch. Indulgent, 
I run the corner of the towel under the tap and use it to scrub the smell off my neck. But the shopkeepers are watching me now, so I do it a little self-consciously, as if, you know, doing it casually will make it seem like I'm not doing it at all. The question is now whether to layer a nicer smell over the bad one or to leave things as is. I go for the former. I can't have him thinking I smell like the type of man who has a fear and loathing in Las Vegas poster in his room. I find one that smells fresh, like jasmine and laundry. It's feminine, which maybe when combined with the spritz of performative masculinity underneath it, will actually be the perfect scent. Maybe it's a more honest reflection of self to be a combination of something you don't like and is trying to scrub away, layered with the spritz of how you want to be. Sorry, was in shower down in five. He doesn't use as many commas as I do, but I'm a glut for commas. I already know what his face and penis look like, so there isn't a lot of room for surprise. Plus, I zoomed in on the background of one of his photos and saw what skincare products he uses. But it's still exciting, that anticipation. It's like finding out your results for an exam when you sort of know how you did, but you don't have the certainty of a percentage. Even though I'm not being graded on this, hopefully. I pop him into my mouth. I wait outside his front door. It opens and I take a few steps back. A father and daughter walk through the door. She's running out in front of him and he's trying to send a text while slowing her down. He looks at me as I'm clearly waiting to get inside. He gestures if I want to go in while the door is still open, but he seems reluctant. I sort of mouth that I'm fine, which he doesn't have time to react to because his daughter is already running ahead. She's going places. I smell my wrist again and notice I'm still wearing my rings. You want to take your rings off before you hook up. That is something I learned when I accidentally left my favourite ring on a bedside table. It was, in hindsight, a horrid ring, but I wish I could have worn it for longer before realising it was horrid. I take off my rings and put them in my coat pocket and make a note to myself to be careful when I take my coat off in his flat so that my rings don't fall on the floor. The door opens again and the oldest man in Paris is at the door. I smile because if this was him then the ghoul is almost impressive. The man is hunched over, almost like he's a young boy playing an old man in a school play. The young boy old man hobbles away. I know that one day I will be old, but I can't imagine it. I can only imagine it in theory, like when someone tells you about an honestly delicious meal they had that doesn't sound nice, but it was honestly delicious. I send him a message. Cool. That's to remind him I'm still outside and still exist. Although I'm not in a rush, there's something embarrassing about being outside for longer than five minutes, especially as he doesn't know that I've actually been outside for about 15 minutes. I can't quite decide if he is the guest star of my life or if I'm the guest star in his. The door opens and there he is. I do my quick calculations to see how I feel. He's shorter than I thought, which is nearly always the case. Maybe I always imagine people as tall unless they tell me explicitly that they're not. Does that make me an optimist? He had his height listed, but it was in metres, which means next to nothing to me, because I can still only get a sense of how long a metre is when I think about three and a bit school 30 centimetre rulers stacked together. He has the most beautiful lips in the world, I decide. The most beautiful lips. He doesn't even need Vaseline rosy lips. I wonder how many people have told him he has beautiful lips, and I hope that lots of people have. What if he doesn't know? But I don't think you can walk around with lips like that and not know. If someone asks him what his favourite part of himself is, I wonder if he feels like he can't say his lips because it would make him seem vain. I hope he doesn't smoke because I read once that smoking can make your lips thinner and I want his lips to stay like this for as long as possible. He's wearing tracksuit bottoms and a t-shirt in a material that looks like it would dry quickly. And it makes my long coat feel a bit formal and silly. I'm presenting and he's just being. 
It's always awkward saying hello. I go for a breathless, hey, while he beckons me in, and I say it in a much lower voice than my own, like, hey, because I can't always be bothered to make a stand against internalised homophobia. Breathless haze are the most casual, I think, even if manufacturing them is the least casual thing in the world. The building is old. He leads me to a lift, which is also old. Old and tiny. So tiny, I think it's technically only supposed to fit one person, but it'd be very strange if we went in shifts, especially considering what we're about to do. We both squeeze in, and he has to lean over me to press the button. He has toothpaste breath, which is one of my favourite things in the world. I tell him it's such a lovely building, which I don't really mean. He asked me to repeat myself because he didn't understand me, and I do, and I say, lovely, like I'm a visiting royal. Lovely. He nods and says, oui? Very French. One of my most and least favourite parts of these things, I say with an arch of my eyebrow, we know what these things are, is the moment between you both being inside and deciding when to get things started. I imagine it's how a dancer feels in the few moments whilst they're waiting for the music to start before they can start their choreography. It usually goes from zero to ten pretty quickly, like a switch is flicked and both respective parties shift to sexy mode. We don't talk much, both realising perhaps that the language barrier would make things stilted. We start with kissing, and I can't help but think it's strange that lips have nothing to do with kissing, really, like when it comes to it. Obviously, they're involved physically, but whether or not it's a nice kiss has nothing to do with the lips, just like you can't feel a cashmere jumper if you're wearing a long sleeve t shirt underneath it. Lips are for the eyes. The kiss is. hungry? I mean, that's what's often written in books that are made for Kindle, but perhaps the kiss is more needy than hungry. The kiss is hungry in the way you say you're hungry as you sit down at a restaurant, even though you ate an hour before in case the starters take ages to arrive. He doesn't know me, so how can he be hungry for me? Maybe he's hungry for the person who's wearing two different perfumes, pretending to be one perfume. For what is supposed to be a physical experience, I spend most of the time in my head, turning it into a story as it's happening. I make a mental note of where I put my trousers. As I pull down my boxes, I make sure to hook them on my ankles so that I can pull them up as soon as we're done. At one point he asks if I want to go into the bedroom and fuck, but I politely say no, because I can't be bothered with the admin of it. I've already decided this is a short story. They're much classier anyway. I try to get eye contact, which is difficult considering our current positions. I want to see if he's thinking as much as I am. My love interest. If he was, maybe the two narrators in our head could knowingly look at each other. But he's probably not. That he's present, which is something I have been maybe 12 times in my life and immediately ruined by thinking about how present I'm being. In his head, I bet it sounds like this. I think I've had the experience I want, which is the building of the situation rather than the situation itself. Like, I've booked tickets for the theatre to feel like I'm doing something cultural, even if I don't care about what the play is and ultimately always want the play to be shorter than it is. Although, maybe that's a bad metaphor, because at least at the theatre, I don't always have the prickling waves of fear that I'll get an STD. Usually. My jaw is sore, and I keep asking him if he's ready to... in the hopes that he is. Finally, he is, and I watch him finish and try and muster up a look of seductive encouragement, and hope he doesn't notice that I am slowly shimmying up my boxes. I'm ready to leave, but he's ready to talk. 
I find my top and he asks me what I'm doing in Paris. I'm here for work, I tell him. He asks me what I do, so I have to ask myself, what does the person who's wearing this smell do? Marketing, I decide. Marketing? He says, yes, I reply with a roll of my eyes as the person who wears this perfume knows that marketing is a vague answer. The person who wears this perfume is aware of that. He doesn't want to talk about it that much, okay? He asks me my name and I give him it, because a good story always has a little bit of truth in it. He gives me his name, which is very French, which is good because I would be disappointed if his name was something like Richard. But I suppose any name sounds French if you say it in a French accent, even Richard. Richard. See? Because my mind left the situation a while ago, I'm trying to get my body to follow suit, but he still wants to chat. I say, I've got to go, annoyingly, and he asks me where. I say lunch with friends, even though it's 4pm. He also says it's 4pm, which is very late for lunch, even by European standards, who are fashionably late even when it comes to mealtimes. I explain that whilst it is very late for lunch, yes, we had a late breakfast, my fictitious group of friends and I, omelettes perhaps, but that might be too on the nose. We were meeting for drinks, and actually, what we're doing isn't so much a lunch and more of a snack. Does he know anywhere that would be good for that, for um, imaginary snacks? He hasn't considered putting clothes on this entire time, which I find to be almost aggressively self-assured. I wouldn't know what to do with my arms if I was naked like that, talking. I'd have to hold a mug, which might look unsettling, or put my hands on my hips like a sitcom mom. I already have my coat on, and I've checked my pockets to make sure my rings haven't fallen out. He's asking me about London, and I say I live in Notting Hill, which could be true if I was a senior in marketing as I think I could be. A real shark in the marketing world, but oh, so, so fun at work drinks. Before I know it, we're chatting. He's lassoed me in with banal small talk, and I'm live laugh loving it. He tells me that he doesn't have many friends in Paris, and I feel bad for bragging about my fictitious group of close work friends I have late breakfasts and snacks with. I learn that he runs and does sit-ups every day to keep his body how it is. He mimes sit-ups in a very easy game of charades. He says that I look very English, and I ask him what he means, sensing that either a compliment or an insult is poking its head around the corner. It ends up being sort of somewhere in the middle, but in a nice way. And we agree that he actually doesn't look that French, but more Italian. He's still naked, astonishingly. I don't think I've ever had such gentle and exploratory small talk with a naked man. I say that maybe we could hang out again, and I take his number. But I can't stop thinking about the fact that I haven't seen his bedroom. And despite me taking his number and making sure I got the spelling of his name right, I know I will never see this man again. The kind, naked French man who looks like a naked Italian man. So I'll never see his bedroom again. And for some reason, the story doesn't feel complete if I don't see it. I pretend to have mislaid something. Whilst patting down my coat in my turn of charades, I wander into his bedroom. I don't know what I was expecting. I think, because of his French accent, maybe I was thinking there would be a chandelier, or at least a nod towards one. Not what I recognised to be the regolite lampshade from Ikea. Or, because I thought of him as more sexually experienced than me, I thought everything would be crimson and velvet and there'd be a half-smoked cigarette on the bedside table and everything would smell of musk, whatever that smells like. Instead, there's too much navy bed linen, no laundry basket and nothing on the walls apart from a mirror that is just a mirror and doesn't even have a frame. 
I look at myself in my lovely long coat and think that currently I am the most glamorous thing in the room. Humiliatingly, I wink at myself. I go to his bed with a newfound pluck that I plucked from uncreative interior design choices and rub one of his pillows on my neck, certain that he'll go to bed and think of me, the worldly Parisian whore that got away. Hi, Harry. Hello. Thank you for your story. That was delicious. Let's start with where you began with the story. You know, something that we're asking each of our writers is what did you first land on or what was your initial response to the provocation of telling something that you'd never told before? I don't, yeah, I think as like a clinical oversharer, I had to rein myself in slightly because I was ready to just, you know, spill everything. But I think I just, I've always found it very interesting the kind of compartmentalizing of I guess especially like kind of like queer experiences when you're figuring them out and also that kind of like hookup culture I've just always found very interesting how it is so often it feels very separate from your real life or it can be Let's talk more about that in in the sense that what do you think about dating or hookup culture like hasn't been explored or has it been represented in a certain way that you're like, actually, no, that doesn't mirror my own experiences? Well, I think it's it's a funny one when you're when you're growing up and if you haven't got like a rule book or anything or like a mentor or anything like that, or people to talk to, then you kind of figure it out by yourself. And I think a lot of young, I think this is more specific probably for gay men, but it's not a universal experience. But I think a lot of people figure it out through hookups. Like, that's how they first kind of engage with their sexuality. So I've always found that very interesting. And there's a lot of talk about, like, divided self, which I think is, you know, that kind of leads into compartmentalising. And then also how you can kind of be a separate person. It's like, you've got these very short interactions and they don't know anything about you and you don't know anything about them. So you can kind of be whoever you want to be and it's quite a nice I don't know it's quite a nice uh, distancing thing it's both incredibly intimate but also incredibly like weird and formal it's like a really it's an interesting crossover yeah I suppose like you're having a form of intimacy but not as yourself exactly so is it intimacy if you're not really being yourself or is that yourself and it's just a separate part of yourself and how do the two bleed over into your life I guess Something we, that we spoke about during the writing and like crafting process was about keeping the tone light and yes. playful. What was your intention behind that? Why was that important for you? Well, I think that I can first. I could just never ever do anything too serious. Like even if I even if I try, I think it would just be very humiliating. <laughs> and I think also it's not. It is. It's light and it's fun. Like I think it's not this. It doesn't always have to be this like very serious thing that like defines you. It can just be like really fun and playful and you discover more about yourself yeah and I think so I wanted to keep that in it and also I guess the comments that you make to yourself in any interaction and because it's in many ways like a really bizarre interaction it does feel funny in the time I'm wondering if we can like get into the head of your narrator yeah and think about why he has such a hard time being present in a moment yeah and you say that (laughs) I love the moment where he talks about only being present 12 times in yes. his life. Have you thought about like what those 12 times are and what pulls him out of it? I don't know. I think it I think it is like as and you can tell the 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 narrator is like incred like just like a clinical overthinker like as in he's just yeah kind of thinking constantly and I think it's almost like a search to be presentness like as in 
technically it should be a time that you're very present, but because you're so not in yourself, it's kind of impossible to be. As someone that like will disassociate at the drop of a hat, I find that interesting in a time when you're supposed to be very present and very like there physically, how your mind can be like miles away and what that looks like. And it almost feels like you're watching a scene rather than being in it. All intimate or sexual experiences, you're besieged by this idea of how it's yes. supposed to be yeah, yeah, and yeah. how it's supposed to look. So I wonder if there's this idea that like there is a literal scene yeah. playing in your head and, and then you're also competing or like trying to make that match up. Totally. And also the way that you imagined it would go is like the lighting is much better for one. You're much more tanned than you find yourself to actually be. And yeah, it's like you're your own voyeur. We're all we're all creeps, basically. Love it. Not that voyeurism is creepy. Let's clarify. (laughs) You don't explicitly say why the narrator is in Paris. We sort of don't get that explanation. But I'm wondering if you have a backstory in your head for how he's ended up here and what the real reason for the trip is. So firstly, I thought, so that whole thing about when you're hooking up, you're someone different. And I thought you're also kind of that when you're abroad by yourself. So there's those added layers to it. So he's by himself, so he can be anyone that he wants to be in Paris, and then he can be anyone that he wants to be in Paris on this hookup. And then also Paris, the expectation of romance. It's like the romantic city. And I don't know, I just like, I really like the idea of this narrator like kind of going to Paris for the weekend by himself for this like romantic trip. And yeah, it just being this, these like kind of layers of what romance is and and who you are and... Identity. Identity and romance. And it's like his real self is constantly kind of... He's constantly re-encountering his real self. Yes. Like, with his performative self. Yes. Yeah, and his his own self, like, catches him out and, like, almost, like, makes fun of him. The only, like... The only person who really knows him is the concierge with the two not matching hoops. Because he's like, is it going to be safe here? It feels quite Francis Ha. Have you seen that film? Oh, I love that. <laughs> oh my God, yeah, when she has the really, really like, bad French. Oh, it's so, I love that bit. I'm basically gratified like, <laughs> what you're saying, and that's okay. That's the takeaway from yeah. this whole experience. Yeah. <laughs> People obviously know you actually as an actor and comedian, much like Greta Gerwig. Um, they've obviously seen you on their social media. Feeds. Yeah, me and Greta are the same level. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if you found writing comedy in this way that has maybe a bit more of prose to it, as opposed to skits, bits, mm. sort of shorter form comedy, different, more fulfilling, or challenging. No, it's really easy. No, I'm working on a few things that are more long form anyway and it, I found it to be a really it's just like a really nice thing where you're writing a script like so much of it depends on other things so like the visuals of it the actors the director all that stuff and when you're writing prose it's like fully realized once you've done it it's like a full and completed thing and there's something really satisfying about that and you can color basically in everything and I I found that reading it was another level of that like it really feels like a complete piece which is it which is nice i basically feel like um rihanna in the recording studio being like and that's a wrap on my album i think that's leave it there yes. i'm just gonna cut after and good that's a wrap on my album and that's a wrap on my album i feel like rihanna <laughs> thank you so much harry slash greta slash rihanna <laughs> yeah it's uh i've got many identities let me tell you um thank you so much i really loved this this episode of never told was produced by me nicole davis our executive producer is Sarah Brocklehurst. Our production assistant and assistant story editor is Amy Yeo. 
Our sound designer and mixer is Tom Wally. Our artwork is designed by Bet Norris. That's our show for today, and we'll be returning next week with a brand new story from Joanne Lau. Listen to Never Told on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.